Good morning, everybody. Kids, you guys can head out to class, all the fourth and fifth, middle school and high schoolers. Mel, grab a microphone. Let's talk a little bit about last week's tour, if you don't mind. This week, uh, for the past four or five weeks, our series has been blind spots. We're looking at these insidiously hidden, benign-seeming ways that we still hold bias and prejudice inside of our hearts. And we're just opening up our hearts kind of really through that filter of that psalmist prayer, uh, search us, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in us. Frederick Buechner said, the problem with introspection in an isolated setting, when I'm satisfied just to look at myself and think I see everything, Buechner was very insightful when he said, the problem with that kind of introspection is when I step back to look at myself, I see everything except the part that stepped back. And the part that stepped back is often where many things hide. That's why we need community. And one of the ways that God does search us is when we live in community. And people are able, other people are able with perspective to help us see blind spots. And so that's what this series has been about, all the different ways that we, uh, these things can hide in us. Last week, Mel did a, a tremendous message and I just want to say, she not only curates a service well, she puts together a message really well. Homiletic professors in school would be very pleased with the way she puts together a message. So, um, and this is someone who's probably only preached 15 or 20 times, so it's really, it's really phenomenal. But she did a really great message last week, kept my attention all the way through, which is a real score, I'll tell you. Um, I put myself to sleep sometimes, so other people can really do it to me. But uh, her message last week was on xenophobia and looking at the ways that we uh, have bias toward other cultures. It's a pretty generalized concept. Um, but a, a part of that, and we're going to delve in today, is religionism, the culture of religion. And I thought it was really appropriate that last week after her message on xenophobia that a good dozen of our people took a tour of some other religious institutions and I, I just in bantering with her about it this week I said well this would be a perfect place to kind of launch uh, the message today so what did you guys where'd you go and what did you so experience if you went with us raise your hand there was just a handful of us fabulous we had an incredible time so basically Nashville put together this tour bus it was a tour of Nashville worship places and it was two big tour buses um, and probably around 75 people or so so the first stop we made was at the mosque um, up in Nashville on off 12th Avenue and it was so beautiful we went in we take off our shoes and they had um, snacks and drinks set up to serve us and then the um, imam there just talked a little bit about the Muslim faith and he focused in basically on the peace of their religion and on the stereotypes that are often held about Muslims and he denied most of those and said no this is actually who we are so it was really beautiful to get to see that and then he jumped on the bus with us and then we headed over to Second Presbyterian Church to talk about Christianity and at Second Pres they had a panel of four pastors three of which were women which of course I loved um, the fourth was a male Catholic priest but um, it was the pastor of Second Prez um, there, the pastor of, um, I believe it's East End Methodist, United Methodist, over up in East Nashville. Um, then Renita Weems, who is a co-pastor. Ray of Hope. Ray of Hope yep. Church, and then the, the Catholic priest of the parish there. So it was so intriguing because honestly, three out of four off that panel happened to be more progressive and liberal uh, Christians. Um, and so it was so intriguing to hear. At one point, they asked a question um, they took questions from the audience and they asked a question specifically about interfaith and where they stood on interfaith and the um, Methodist pastor so eloquently responded she said I'm not out to convert other people into Christianity she said I want to make Christians good Christians and I want to make sure and walk alongside Muslims and make sure they're good Muslims and walk alongside Hindus and make sure they're good Hindus or good Jews or whatever it may be I just want us to share the goodness um, of God and be good to ourselves and others and so I'm on the back like cheering yelling amen so it was so beautiful and then we jumped on the bus and we headed over to the Jewish temple up off of West End and this was a um, Orthodox Jewish temple so he describes how Orthodox are more conservative and there's a the middle ground of the Jewish face. I'm, I'm 
Uh, the middle ground is actually called conservative. So you have orthodox, okay. yeah, conservative. Orthodox is the most conservative. Conservative Jewish is in the middle. And then reformed Jews are actually the liberal Jews because they consider themselves continually reforming the tradition. And I was so um, intrigued by that because obviously reformed Christians are much more conservative. They're trying to hold on to the one reformation that happened. Um, so that was very intriguing. He was, um, he let my son blow a shofar. In fact, Hutch texted me. All my kids went. And Hutch texted me because I was still on the bus. And he said, Mom, I blew a ram's horn. He was a shofar. And I was like, did they let you do that or did you just get it? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, no, they let me. I'm like, thank goodness. So then we left the Jewish um, temple and we went over to the Hindu temple, which is out in Bellevue. And this is, first of all, just a gorgeous structure in itself. And we went inside and they were so welcoming. Um, And they had us take off our shoes as we went upstairs into their um, prayer room. And this um, man, he was basically like, Hinduism is a monotheistic religion. And we were like, what? Because we're looking around at all of these icons and statues, basically, in the room. And he goes, no, 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 we're monotheistic. We believe in one God. We just believe that God has these different facets and personalities, much like Christians believe God is father or shepherd or pastor or doctor or any name, started naming things. He's like, we're just the same as you. He goes, in fact, we believe everyone is a Hindu. You just don't know it yet. (laughs) (laughs) And so... And then he talked about the different ways in which they worship and that they're very free form and they can come in. They have an actual Sunday school on Sunday mornings, but basically people will worship at different um, icons, just whatever they're most relating to at the moment. And some people will dance and some people will be quiet and some people will ring the spell super loud. He's like, basically anything that you want, you can do. And so we asked questions about morality with him specifically, like where were their ethical boundaries? And he said, all we want you to do is be a good person, be good to yourself and be good to others. And then they believe in karma and all these things happening. But there was this beautiful thread that honestly went throughout the day, even with the more conservative or the more liberal people, there was a thread that was weaving us all together. And those of us that were there, I think were so intrigued and encouraged and inspired by that. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted you to tell everybody. That was great. I wish next time that happens, we should take a hundred people, right? Um, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. He's not on our team. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. Jesus said to him, don't stop him. Whoever is not against you is for you. Immediately after that, the days drew near for him to be taken up, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans. But the Samaritans did not receive Jesus because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Religious bias, working both ways. When his disciples, James and John, saw that the Samaritans did not receive him simply because he was going to Jerusalem, his disciples said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus said, you do not know what spirit you are of. Turning, he rebuked them again. Interesting stories, aren't they? Religionism, the simplest definition of religionism is excessive zeal, excessive ardor that a person has toward their religion. Not just zeal and ardor, but excessive. A question certainly can be begged, what is excessive, right? That's a relative term. I remember there was an entire season of my life that I happily called myself a Jesus freak. Isn't that nice? A Jesus freak. Anybody ever been a Jesus freak? Go to church and get your praise on and all of those other cliches. You know, remember that? What is excessive? When I was in sixth grade, I took my Bible to school every day. Periodically, a parent would call my mother six, seven o'clock in the evening. I remember one night, my mother came in with the phone on her ear and she said, he did what? And my mother and the other mother made me get on the phone with 
the fellow that I had accosted on the playground that day, Kelly, and I had to tell him that it was going to be okay and he could go on to sleep now because he was so afraid of the rapture and he was going to hell. I was a convincing little feller. What is excessive? What is excessive zeal and ardor? Um, a second definition that is surely a cognitive at first is extreme piety. Extreme piety. But the religionism that we're looking at or the specific definition that we're working with today results from those two. Not necessarily, but it can result from those two. And that is when excessive zeal and extreme piety for your religion, your religious fervor, leads you to discriminatory or prejudicial practices against people of other religions. A question begs there. What is discriminatory and prejudicial practices against another religion? This will not be a message on the separation of church and state. This will not be a message centering on the idea of why Westboro Baptist why Westboro Baptist has the capacity is that me? Is that, no, okay. Why Westboro Baptist has the capacity to picket people like us. Remember, we, we got in that crowd when Westboro came to picket us. This is not a message about the separation of church and state and those simple rights that belong to people um, within the confines of a particular government in a country. Although I think that is a that is a thoughtful conversation, and I think there's certainly a spectrum of thought on this. Um, we do believe, as we're dealing with excessive and extreme Islam today, not Islam, but excessive and extreme forms of Islam that most people of the Muslim faith denounce, the vast majority of them denounce, but as we look at extreme Islam, um, we, we do draw lines and say you are not allowed to exact harm on another human being in the name of God. And yet that begs the question, do sticks and stones really reserve the only harm for us and words never hurt us? Um, should Westboro Baptist, is it non-discrimination to allow them to hold up the most abhorrent signs at funerals? They couldn't throw bricks and hurt people's bodies. And yet this is such a relativized subject. It's such a difficult subject. You know, how much do we allow inflammatory speech in a country that believes in free speech? These are legitimate questions, but that's not the exploration that I'll take up today. Bias is an inclination or an outlook. An inclination that holds a partial perspective. Think about this word, bias. An inclination or outlook based on the holding of a partial perspective often accompanied, and this is at the heart of bias. We all have partial perspectives, but at the heart of bias is an inclination to hold a partial perspective also with a refusal to consider the possible merits of an alternative point of view. While we are all limited in our thoughts, that does not necessarily constitute bias. What constitutes bias is when I, recognizing my limitations, am absolutely unwilling to admit them and entertain the possible merits of an alternative point of view. To be biased means to be one-sided. To be biased means to be lacking a neutral viewpoint. To be biased essentially means I refuse to have an open mind. I know what I know and there's nothing anybody can say. It's amazing how we argue with one another. Often when I'm in an argument or a debate with someone and I just cannot understand why they are not getting my point of view, I have to step back and ask myself, is there anything they could do right now to change my mind and almost every time I can tell you in those conversations there is absolutely nothing they could do to change my mind why would I think there would be something I could do to change theirs bias the refusal to have an 
open mind. Prejudice. Prejudice is a prejudgment. It's forming an opinion before becoming aware of the relevant facts of a case. To be prejudiced is very similar, almost synonymous with bias. But I form an opinion before I've considered all of the relevant facts. Many of us think that we have considered the relevant facts. And yet the reality is there are always more relevant facts on almost every matter that we consider. Prejudice. The word prejudice is used, one definition says, to refer to preconceived, usually unfavorable judgments toward people because of their gender, their beliefs, their values, their social class, their age, their abilities, their religion. Preconceived, unfavorable judgments, forming an opinion before becoming aware of the relevant facts. Discrimination. More active now, moving from the internal to the external, from dispositions toward actions. Discrimination is treatment, making a distinction in favor of or against a person based on the group, class, or category to which that person or thing is perceived to belong rather than individual merit. Bias, prejudice, discrimination. Perhaps there are more benign, neutral definitions of those terms, but mostly we hold those terms in the pejorative, in the negative. The question begs, as we approach the subject of religion and the worship of God, the following of a spiritual ideology, how does one hold their faith convictions? How does one have religious experiences, religious experiences that are often counted as transformative and life-changing. How does an individual experience what we refer to as the divine, the holy other, God? How do human beings have these encounters that move them, transform them, revolutionize them, save their families and their lives? How do they have those experiences and subsequently develop ardor and zeal and fervor and gratitude? And at the same time, maintain a level also of spiritual openness and or humility toward people who do not share those experiences. How do we have a sense of religious spiritual conviction and not find ourselves in the pejorative categories of bias discrimination, and prejudice? Is the resolve simply that we let other people worship the way, we, or the way they want to worship? To let them express their religion and their spiritual experiences as they choose to express them? Is that the end of discrimination for us? Is that the end of bias and prejudice? Or are there more internal, latent, Sentiments, feelings, dispositions that we have toward them. That while we are not sanctioning them, while we are not controlling them, while we are not disallowing them to experience the same rights and privileges we do, we still see them with a material level of condescension. Far from sticks and stones and far from bricks and bombs hurled, do we still carry inherent biases and prejudices against people who do not share our religious fervor that are not benign but actually are damaging to our common humanity. Are those biases fair to carry? These are significant questions, aren't they? They're questions that make us uncomfortable for sure. There are essentially three filters through which almost every religion Almost every religious group experiences their religious ideology. Three general philosophical kind of zeitgeist or worldviews, filters, interpretive filters through which people hold their religion. And I heard Melissa express two of them very explicitly a moment ago, and the third one was implied. The three filters through which most people 
the vast majority of people hold their religious ideology are the filters of exclusivism, inclusivism, and pluralism. And I think these categories should never be lost on us because I, I think intuitively we experience them all, but uh, at times it's, it's good to be explicit and to express them and to just take them out and look at them together individually and as a body, a, a religious body. Exclusivism is the theoretical lens, the philosophical lens that says there is a God and that God singularly has chosen to disclose God's self. God is a revealing God, a disclosing God, a communicative God, a God who wants to engage humanity almost always in an effort to redeem humanity. And this God has done this one time in one way that is most full and salvific and any claims to the expression of disclosure and communication from God that are salvific, any claims other than this claim are anathema or false doctrine. In other words, there is only one clear and full expression of divine truth and it is this particular religion. How many of you grew up in a religious setting that was exclusivistic? Let's raise our hands high. Look around. Some of you didn't raise your hand, and it would be really interesting to engage that conversation. Um, there are some of you that grew up in religious settings that were exclusivistic, but your particular family was more open than that, and that's always intriguing when a family and a religious setting are at odds. I grew up in that to, to some degree. My, my mother and father were the fourth generation of our particular religious uh, expression, and they were always pushing the limits. They were always more inclusive and more kind than the religious setting that they took us to, which was always um, created a bit of a dissonance for us because we would hear one thing at home and then we would hear another thing at church. Anybody have that experience? Your, your family at home. How many of you, your family was probably not quite as ardent as the religious body they took you to? Yeah, a lot of us had that. So there are always those people in the church like my, my mom. She was always pushing the limits. She would cut her hair and they would take her off of the organ. She couldn't play the organ anymore because she would cut her hair. Uh, my father would coach Little League ball. Every now and then my father would grow a mustache. Men could not have facial hair in our movement. Isn't that something? Couldn't have facial hair. I always wondered about eyebrows, but you couldn't have facial. You couldn't have facial hair. I, I never got how this was somehow moral ground, but this was immoral ground. But we, J.W. is a sinner because he had the scruffy. But my dad, every now and then, would grow a beard or a mustache, and and he would no longer be able to um, pass out songbooks. And so my family were always, when when my when my mom and dad, who I'm very close to, when, and they may be listening right now, but when they push back on me and say, "Son, you just." push and push and push. I said, I wonder where I got that from. I'm, I'm pushing from a different place because I started in a different place because I started at the place that you pushed to. They don't know exactly what to say when I say that, but anyway, <laughs> then we just go back to talking about Cardinal baseball and it's all good. So, <laughs> Exclusivism. Our way or no way, Right? So we're all pretty aware of, of that one. Inclusivism is an interesting one. The Hindu guy just expressed. What Melissa said that the Hindu priest, uh, leader, uh, his saying that all of us are Hindus and we just don't know it, that's inclusivism. That's a religious group holding their idea of God's manifestation, God's revelation, God's disclosure, God's communication, holding it as special, as right, and as ultimate. But not believing those who do not share the privilege of being born in that world, because often this comes down to the caprice and the whimsy of geography, doesn't it, right? 
One of my favorite quotes that I quote often is O. Phillips Brooks, the Anglican preacher, who when asked, why are you a Christian, his classic response that I've just never gotten over it, and it's simple, simple beauty. I mean, Brooks was one of the greatest Anglican preachers of the late 19th century, and when he was asked this question, why are you a Christian, the person asking, the interlocutor asking the question, no doubt was waiting on this answer of great erudition and insight. Brooks paused a long time and said, I think it has something to do with a great aunt of mine who lived in New Jersey. <laughs> you see what he's saying? To not admit that, you know there's a difference religiously. There's going to probably be a difference religiously in your life based on whether or not you were born in Tibet or Tennessee. Can we admit that? And the inclusivist is dealing with this dissonance of they know they have experienced what they believe to be an ultimate, powerful, transformative expression of God. So powerful and transformative that as they have pursued all other facts, they still believe that this religious expression is the ultimate manifestation of God. And they do not believe all others are equivalent to this. As a matter of fact, they admit others are less than this. Now there are inclusivists who say all others are not only less than this, but they are not real whatsoever. Some inclusivists are broader and they say other expressions are partial or fractional expressions, but this is the whole. But the dissonance for them is not, well the dissonance for them is created by the fact that they do believe robustly in their expression of faith, but they don't believe salvation and God's gracious inclusion should come down to the whimsy and geography of where a person was born. So C.S. Lewis was very much an inclusivist. It's always funny from, to me how many evangelical conservative Christians love C.S. Lewis because he was very much a moderate with leftist leanings. Uh, his mentor, George MacDonald, was very much a Christian universalist even and Lewis caught some of that, but Lewis never ended up a universalist. Lewis ended up an inclusivist. He believed that the Christian expression of God was the fullest expression of God and the saving expression of God. But he simply believed that it was so incredibly powerful that it would not be limited to those who simply had geographical or sociological or chronological access to its story. And so C.S. Lewis, even in his little books, the, the, the Tales of Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia, you remember Aslan was a type of Christ. And Lewis dealt with this dissonance when he had Aslan at the final judgment, all of the earth standing before Aslan. And there were people who came from the far side of the world who had never accessed or heard of Aslan. And as they were standing before Aslan, they cried out in fear of judgment and said, Oh, Aslan! We didn't know it was you throwing themselves at the mercy of the judgment seat to which Aslan graciously picks them up and says, no, no, no. You knew me. Today you learn my name. That resonates with people. Even Billy Graham in his later life said things that intimated that. Exclusivism for some people feels immoral, that God would narrow the arc of mercy and inclusion based on something as simple as where you are born and the access you had. And while that feels immoral to them, they retain the beauty and the richness of their tradition, but they simply say what the Hindu priest said, and that is, y'all are good people, your religion is a limited religion, and you're actually, if you're loving and doing good work and worshiping God, you actually are Hindus and just don't know it. See? He just pulled a C.S. Lewis. Did you know y'all were all Hindus? That's inclusivism. Inclusivism. There are scriptures that indicate inclusivism. Um, Paul in, Ro in both Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul said, as a Jewish rabbi doing good midrash with an ancient text, Paul said there was a first Adam and there was a second Adam, and the first Adam was the guy 
that got talked into eating a fruit by his wife and a talking snake and blew the whole deal for all of us. That's the first Adam. And he said the second Adam, you know who it is, is the man Christ Jesus. And, and Paul said this, and this is a very inclusivistic statement. Paul said in the first Adam, anybody remember what happens in the first Adam? In the first Adam, which all of us are a part of, we are all genetically linked, Paul believed, to the first Adam, the first human. Paul said, in the first Adam, all what? Die. So in the first Adam, all die. In the second Adam, all are made what? Live. So in the first Adam, all die. How many does all mean? All. Don't you like it when there's no simpler synonym? You're down to the three-letter word, and you're like, what's all mean? I think it means all. All means all. So in the first Adam, everybody can take the first Adam, how many of them experience spiritual and physical death? All. In the second Adam, a remnant will be made alive. No. Same word. The inclusivist said, how in the world... Does all mean all when people are dying, but all doesn't mean all when people are living? If the first Adam killed everybody and the second Adam made everybody alive, those everybodies are the same thing. Somebody says, but the only way you can... This is an inclusivist message. I'm not preaching it because I, I, inclusivism uh, um, probably is not my position, but it has been, and it's plausible to me. But the inclusivist would say... To the pushback, and the pushback is, hey, wait a minute. In, in the first Adam, all are, all are dead. In the second Adam, all are made alive. Yes, but the all is conditioned by that person has to receive by faith what the, what the second Adam has done, right? That's the logic. You've got to receive by faith what the second Adam has done. The inclusivist says that's not what Paul said necessarily, but how unfair is it? That the first Adam kills us without, us without our acceptance. Why do we have to accept what the second Adam has done? Did anybody here go to the altar to receive what the first Adam did to you? You see what he's saying? Or she's saying? You didn't have to receive what the first Adam did. Why do you have to receive what the second Adam did? That's an inclusivist position. And then there's the pluralist position. Pluralist says there is a God, there are humans, and ever since there have been humans, those humans have been consciously reaching toward the divine. All over this world, in every culture, in every age, where there are homo sapiens sapiens, those homo sapiens are reflecting on existential matters. They are experiencing angst about the afterlife. And they are wondering from whom they came, to whom they're going, and to whom they're responsible in the meantime. That is a ubiquitous, universal sentiment in the heart of humanity. And that sentiment, that gravitational pull between humans and the divine, the pluralist says, the anthropologist says... That, that gravitational pull between the divine and the human creates interaction. Our book, the Judeo-Christian text, the Old and the New Testament, is a story of human beings interacting with the divine. Almost all religious text and a good portion of classic literature is the story of human beings interacting with the divine. When that gravitational pull creates interaction, the interaction between humans and the divine, that interaction is so profound. People get baptized and the spirit descends like a dove and voices ring from heaven. Frederick Buechner said, as a young agnostic, I sat in that Presbyterian church on Fifth Avenue in New York City, and I was only there not for faith, but I was there 
because I was bored and I loved the architecture of that building. And as I sat enduring the experience of Buttrick, the preacher's George Buttrick, his sermon, he said, as that old man preached and I just sat there wasting away a Sunday morning, he said his eyes were bobbing up and down and the light was glinting off of his glasses. He was speaking about the coronation of Queen Mary in England. And he said as he was speaking about her coronation, he began to speak about how the coronation of Jesus as king in the heart of an individual generally happens with many tears and with much laughter. And he said at those words, I was arrested and it was though I was struck across my face. Atlantis rose up out of the sea and the great wall of China fell as tears leaped from my eyes. That kind of experience. I get goosebumps talking about it. Those kinds of experiences, those stories have to be told. And in the telling and the retelling of those stories, the stories begin to accumulate. Bodies of people begin to share their experiences with the divine. And as those experiences accumulate culturally, as they accumulate generationally, a body of stories becomes so large that that group of people begin to recognize common denominators within those stories. And over time, formalized religious processes begin to develop to care for these stories. And not only care for these stories, Duane, but to stoke these stories. The reason Beekner tells that story is because he wants somebody else to be slapped across the face. I remember in our old world, our old Pentecostal world, uh, one of our little churches there in northeast Arkansas... Our people pursued this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit would fall from heaven and we would speak with tongues. I, I, I speak of that with no aversion. I speak of that with no negativity, no sense of pejorative, because this was a lovely group of people who were trying to get through life. And this expression we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Paul, was simply our desire to encounter the divine. And I remember one of our little churches where I used to preach a revival. Somebody had had that experience, David, and they had had it while sitting in this chair. They had gotten so tired seeking it, Butch, that they brought out this chair and the person sat in it. And finally, late in the night, this overwhelming sense of the Holy Spirit came. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. For the next 20 years, that chair was called the Holy Ghost chair. And any time anybody wanted the Holy Ghost would bring that chair out and set them right down in that chair. You say, well, that's silly. It's damaging. I, I don't know. Is it limiting? Yes. Is it a full expression? No. But the heart of it is people who had experiences with God longing for other people to have those experiences. One of the things that happened in formal religion is when Jesus comes into your life, God walks into your life, and you're blind, and God spits and makes mud and puts it on your eyes and tells you to go wash in this pool, and it happens, and you're and you see, look, it's very natural and understandable that you would be the person who wants to start the first church of the mud packers. Because you were blind and now you see, why wouldn't you want to share that? But seldom can the divine experience of God be wholesaled and packaged and mass manufactured and transferred from one person to another. But that's what religion tries to do. And the heart of that, I understand, is generally pure. Pluralism says that all around this world, in all cultures, in all times, these experiences have been happening, these experiences have been accumulating, these experiences have been legitimate. They have created religions, but at the heart of those religions are genuine accumulations of experiences. And the pluralist said, how dare any one group look at the whole rest of the world and say, our accumulation of experiences is better than yours. As a matter of fact, our accumulation of experiences are so much better than yours, we are dubious to the genuineness and the efficacy of your experiences. Pluralism, the pluralist says, how dare any group be so presumptuous to do that to another group? Exclusivism, Inclusivism, 
and pluralism. Can all three of those positions be held without discriminatory bias? Can all three of those positions be held and not be counted as prejudice? Or not be counted as an absence of piety and zeal? I grew up, I have often told the parable, I grew up on the top of the mountain called God. I grew up at the top of a mountain called Revelation, a top of the mountain called Truth. My form of Christianity took Christianity's idea of full revelation and exclusivism to a fevered pitch. I grew up at the top of that mountain knowing that everyone else was down the mountain and that the only goal that I should have in life is to bring everybody else to this pinnacle where I was. And then through exposure to a broader universe, through personal pain, the encounter of other human beings, reading literature, the clouds that held together the clouds of mystery and revelation, the clouds, the divine clouds of God that were at the top of that mountain, they begin to dissipate. That cloud cover that had always simply, by my estimation, been God, the source of the rain of revelation that we received that watered the top of the mountain, as the clouds began to clear, there was a three to five year period in my mid-twenties that though the clearing of those clouds shocked me because as the clouds cleared, I became aware of the fact that this position that I had thought was the top of the mountain was not the top of the mountain, Andy. It was an outcropping about 400 yards up the side of the mountain. And as the clouds cleared, I looked from my little outcropping that I used to think was the top of the mountain revelation, and the mountain actually extended infinitely into the heavens. And I was struck by the fact that there was so much more, that the facts were so much broader, relevant facts that I had never even had access to. And, and also daunting was the fact that as the clouds cleared, I was also given a clear vision that all around the mountain, there were outcroppings just like mine with entire religious bodies on those outcroppings. And every one of us had staked our flag of religion in that outcropping, calling at the top, and we were the owners of the domain of revelation, God's full truth. And for a few years, my only pursuit was comparative world religions. I just wanted to know who all of these other sincere people were littered all over the side of the mountain with flags in their outcropping, thinking just like me that we were the last of the Mohicans of Revelation. And I finally became so discombobulated by it all that I lost my equilibrium and I did what lots of people do and I fell off of my outcropping. And I tumbled down, down, down the side, that descent into faithlessness, into agnosticism, into a person who was almost bereft of faith, tumbled with wounding down the side, the shards and the crevices, until finally, in a, in a faithless heap, I lay at the bottom of the mountain. And I remember there were a few years uh, just desperate to believe something that I stayed, I stood at the bottom of that mountain and I tried with bloodied hands and knees to climb back up. If I could just get back to the certainty of the outcropping I was on, it would have been a win. And it was always three steps up and four steps back and with every effort. And then I finally decided that I was going to find Sherpas. You know, those people who are experts at the base of the mountain who promised to get you to the top of the mountain. And I looked for every guru that I could find. Every philosophical humanist guru, every religious guru. Those who promised to get me back up the side of the mountain. And every Sherpa failed 
or I failed them. And I have finally, and this has been the resolve of this question of ardor, which I still have much of, and bias, which I am trying to shed, the resolve for me is I have finally made peace with the fact that this mountain is so vast that at least in this life it will never be fully scaled. Not only is it vast infinitely upward, it is vast at the base. And there are so many ways to climb this mountain. And as I've often said, instead of trying to get back to the top of the mountain, counting it my salvation, I now find that peaceful salvation is to build myself a humble cottage at the base of that mountain. And to wake up every morning and stand in the awesome shadows of that majestic peak. And I still mountain climb. I love theology and philosophy, religion, spirituality, an immense amount, perhaps more than I ever have, and I still mountain climb. But I don't expect any Sherpa nor myself to get me to the top of that mountain, and I don't have any sense that my eternal destiny is really going to be dependent upon how effective I am at climbing that mountain. But I traverse those slopes with music and poetry and word and literature and action and involvement and humans and experiences. I spend my life on the slopes of that mountain and every day at the end of the day come back down the mountain, genuflect to mystery, experience gratitude toward God and humility toward the other travelers who live at the base of this mountain and I go to sleep peacefully in this humble cottage where God and I dwell. And that is ardor, that is fervor, it is grace, and it also allows me, it allows me to live peacefully with those around me who mountain climb differently than I do. People from different traditions should keep their own rather than change. However, some Tibetans may prefer Islam, so they can follow that. Some Spanish may prefer Buddhism, so they can follow that. But think about it carefully. Don't do it for fashion. Some people start Christian, follow Islam, then Buddhism, and it seems many of them end up with nothing. So sad. In the United States, I've seen many people who have found it very new and wise to embrace Buddhism. They do this like they change their clothes, like the new age. They take something Hindu, they take something Buddhist, they take something, something, and that is not healthy. For individual practitioners, having one truth, one religion is very important. Several truths, several religions is contradictory, confusing. I am Buddhist, therefore Buddhism is the only truth for me, the only religion. To my Christian friend, Christianity is the only truth, the only religion. To my Muslim friend, Islam is the only truth, the only religion. In the meantime, I respect and admire my Christian friend, my Muslim friend. If by unifying and being gracious, you mean incessantly mixing, that is impossible and useless, the Dalai Lama. Who... Am I? Who is God to me? Who is Jesus to me? These questions do not have to be watered down, mitigated, nor does the zeal and ardor of the heart that asks and holds these questions, does it have to be lessened to believe and give grace to other people of other cultures and other religions that they may not have their Holy Ghost chairs? They may not have their communions. They may not have those things that we hold so dear, but they have theirs. And to share our faith with them means to allow them to share their faith with us. And to do this with grace and humility at the base of this mountain called mystery, I think allows us to maintain our zeal and to keep our hearts free of prejudice and discrimination. And to trust that surely the God of all good and the God of all things would not pare something as important as divine and eternal destinies down to the caprice of where someone was born.
So perhaps with inclusivistic leanings, when I read the story years ago of that young, that young Hindu boy who at the age of 16, I can't even remember where I read the story, but at the age of 16, his sister was drowning in a freezing river. And that young boy, without thought for the fact that he couldn't even swim, dove into the river, ultimately saving his sister's life and losing his own. At 16 years old, selfless and loving, he dove into a river. A young man who had never heard the name Jesus, a young man who had never been exposed to Christianity, and yet a young man who found the truth that greater love hath no one than this, that they would lay down their life. Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life synonymous with Jesus, a doctrine, a theology, and a teaching? Or is Jesus as a way and a truth and the life? Is Jesus simply saying that he is a truthful way of living? Is this what John meant in 1 John when he said, whoever loves is born of God Is this what Lewis meant when he said that Aslan would say, you knew me, today you learned my name? Is this what our Hindu friend meant, Steve, when he said, as concerned as you are for your brothers who are hurting and hungry, that makes you a good Hindu. I thought it made you a good Christian. Maybe it makes you both and maybe it makes you more. There is a way to hold our zeal and our ardor And this message has not fully resolved this tension, but the only way I know to pastor anymore is to not be a smart aleck who thinks that he can take eternal tensions and truths and resolve them in his 40 minutes of erudition, but to present good people with these tensions and say, go chew, go wrestle. I am a shepherd. We lead people to green pastures. We do not spoon feed. You have the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit guide you as you wrestle with these incredibly important matters that we might create a more humane and divine creation on this planet called Earth. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. I don't think you're all Hindus. I think you're all Christians, and I think that's just fine. Go be Christian well. Amen? God bless you.